it's really easy to be in the knowledge business almost full-time and trying to get to a point where you think you've got all the bases covered. Okay, now I think I know everything I need to know before I should move forward. Truth is, we all never even get to that, no matter how much experience we've got. Best ever listeners, where are you going to be on February 22nd and 23rd? I am visualizing that you're going to be in Denver, Colorado, because that's where the Best Ever Conference is, and that's when it is, February 22nd, 23rd. Go to besteverconference.com and even put in take five so you get 5% off your ticket. So that is T-A-K-E and the number five whenever you purchase your ticket. And buy now because ticket prices go up weekly. So go to besteverconference.com. You can read all about the conference, the agenda, the speakers. We've got an incredible speaker list focused on commercial real estate. So that includes five plus units if you're in multifamily. And you're going to get a lot of value from this conference. Go to besteverconference.com. It's the third time we've done it. It improves every year and we have raving reviews. I'm not just saying it. Ask people who have attended every year. Besteverconference.com. Enter Take5, T-A-K-E-5 when you purchase your ticket and get an extra 5% off. Ticket price is going up weekly, so get it today. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today, Darren Garman. How you doing, Darren? I'm doing great, Joe. Thank you. Well, my pleasure and nice to have you on the show. A little bit about Darren. He's been investing in real estate for over 25 years. He's been responsible for over $800 million in apartment and investment property acquisitions. He's personally raised over $70 million in funds for different apartment investment properties based in Marion, Iowa. So with that being said, Darren, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Sure. I've actually started out, I didn't start out as a real estate guy. I actually graduated from college with a degree in criminology. So Joe, if you've ever watched any FBI, CIA shows on TV and how glamorous that looks being a cop, that's kind of what I thought I wanted to be. And when I graduated from college, what I found out was you don't go from being a college graduate to what you see on TV, oddly enough. <laughs> so, <laughs> Imagine uh, that. Yeah. So I started my criminology law enforcement career because, of course, at the time, that's what I thought I wanted to do as a prison guard. So I worked for a prison in eastern Iowa for the uh, Department of Corrections. And it, it only took me about a couple of years to figure out, you know, I don't really know if I want to do this for the rest of my life as a career. So during that time, I started really doing some soul searching and what do I really want to do with my life? What do I want to get involved in? What do I really want to do for the next chapter? And I thought I would really enjoy being involved in the real estate business, specifically the investment real estate business. So I had this thought for probably a year, but I just didn't have the guts to quit and just jump into it. So one day I'm sitting in the warden's office. Now, why in the heck am I sitting in the warden's office? Because they found this empty liquor bottle outside my office. So, of course, they think I had something to do with bringing alcohol in for the inmates to have a party. Of course, yeah. it had nothing to do with it. But as I'm sitting there, there's this book that probably most everyone's heard of. It's called Think and Grow Rich. And this book is sitting on the bookshelf in the warden's office. And I'm like, oh, I'm sitting here waiting. And well, just kind of, it looks like an interesting title. So 
I grabbed the book, I started reading it, got into it just a little bit, went in and had the meeting with the warden and got cleared of and absolved of everything. But not only did that leave a sour taste in my mouth, I've got this book in my hand, right? So I took the book home, read the book, finished it, and that's when I decided, you know what, I'm going to jump into the real estate business. So after I read that book, a couple of weeks later, jumped in the real estate business and have been involved in the real estate business ever since. So what was the last deal you purchased? Oh, let's see. The last deal that we purchased, and I say we because what I ended up doing in this particular one, Joe, is we did put a syndication together to buy it. It was a 24-unit property consisting of two side-by-side 12-unit buildings, all two-bedroom units. And, And our focus is in Iowa. So everything's relative with, I'm sure, all of your listeners and where they're at in their markets. But we purchased this project for $33,000 a unit for two-bedroom units. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you syndicated it at 24-unit property. Quick math, 33 times 24. So it's $792,000 purchase price. What is the threshold for you to syndicate a property versus do a joint venture? Actually, there's a couple of thresholds that I've got. There's a property size threshold, and then there's investor threshold. I'll quickly give you an idea what my property size is. In the market that I like to own real estate, it's typically 24 units or above. Anything smaller than that, just because from an economies of scale standpoint, management and all the things that go into that, it just makes things a little more challenging than what I'd like. So from the size of a property standpoint, typically the the minimum that we would look at would be 24 units. Now, when I first started in the real estate business, just as a quick sidebar, that wasn't always the case. When I first started, it was a four unit here and eight unit there to get the momentum going. But as of right now, Joe, my minimum is 24 units. And in terms of investors, the investors that I deal with are either investors that have been with us a long time, and they're basically letting me know, hey, when you come across this kind of property that has this kind of criteria that we previously discussed, just pretty much count me in. And then there are new investors too that get involved with us at various times during the year. So a lot of what we look at too is driven by the demand from investors too. So if we've got a lot of investors looking for waiting, especially with the way the stock market's been recently, with the ups and downs and the roller coasters that we've seen recently, We've got a lot of investors waiting for opportunity. We may be a little bit more flexible with our criteria, depending on the property. So I don't operate on any hard and fast, etched in stone kind of operandi, so to speak. But in terms of size, we're usually in that 24 units or above. In terms of investors, of course, they need to be a qualified and accredited. But if there's a lot of demand, we may be a little bit more flexible as long as the property meets our criteria, of course we may be a little bit more flexible on what we'll take a look at and possibly try to purchase. So for the 24 unit that you did, what was the investor structure on that deal? But when you say investor structure, give me kind of an idea. What yeah, like a percent ownership. So you took a certain percent ownership. They took a certain percent ownership. How much did they put in? How much did you put in, if anything? What were the fees that you charged? That sort of thing. Oh, okay, sure. So I tend to be conservative when it comes to syndications. What do I mean by conservative? I mean conservative mainly in terms of financing. So as a result, when our syndication purchased something, we will typically put 40 to 50% down payment. 
and what that does for us and for my partners is it not only gives a little bit of room in the event things don't work like you think they will from a debt service standpoint. So we're not highly leveraged in the event the occupancy isn't up to where it needs to be, if there's a issue in the economy, those kinds of things. So we buy ourselves a little cushion in terms of risk with our larger down payment. But the other thing that it does too, and when we get financing is it avoids all sorts of issues. And those issues I'm talking about, Joe, are personal guarantees on loans, number one. The other thing is it avoids things like our investors having to produce income tax returns and personal financial statements and those kinds of things. So I wanted to make it as convenient as possible for them to enjoy owning the properties that we purchase with as low risk as possible. So we choose to put larger down payments on our properties because of that. There are other financing avenues you can go through, as everyone is probably aware that you can leverage a little bit more and maybe increase the return a little bit, but that's just our process. So I tell you all that because we're usually going into a deal with 40 to 50% down. So usually Aaron's part of it is usually in that five to 10% range, depending on the project and some of the things that are involved in it. But just in general, I'm around five to 10% of the ownership Darren is. And then depending on the size of the property, I may have anywhere from heck a minimum of maybe five investors, maybe all the way up to 20 to 30 investors in that particular property. This 24-unit property that we're talking about, Joe, this was eight investors, including myself, this particular one. Okay, got it. That's real helpful. So you had eight investors, including yourself. The purchase price was around 800000 So did you raise around, what, 500 or so to cover the CapEx too, the down payment plus CapEx? That's a great question. Yes, exactly. And I cover the CapEx right up front. So I don't raise just enough to get under the wire in terms of what it's going to require to purchase the property. I'll go ahead and take a look and see what that CapEx is going to be or what I think it's going to be over the next, let's say, 18 to 24 months. And I'll go ahead and have that money raised up front and have that ready to go versus having to go back to any partners and say, oh, by the way, now we need this because we need to repair or we need to make an improvement for this. So I'll do that right up front. So how much in total equity was brought to this deal? The total amount on this one was 440000 Okay, got it. And what type of loan do you get on this type of deal? I will work locally with a handful of commercial banks and credit unions, and my arrangement, I guess that's probably the right word, my arrangement with them is the loan-to-value will be in the 60% loan-to-value range. In return for that, what I'll typically look for is a 20- to 25-year amortization. If I can get a longer-term amortization, that's great, but I can live typically with a 25-year amortization. So... Well, a 25-year amortization, the interest rates will be as competitive as possible, and those loans will be with a fixed rate for probably around anywhere from 5 to 10 years, depending on what I'm able to negotiate. How long ago did you buy that one? Middle of October, October 15th. Okay, so a couple months from when we're recording this call. What's the business plan for that deal, and how long do you plan on holding it? Well, it's interesting you mention that because... We ended up purchasing this property at a discount, and here's what I mean by that. I don't mean discount because of 
anything that was going on with the property, like being in foreclosure or anything like that. It was an owner that owned it long term. And this will ring true to you, Joe, did not keep rents up to market levels and was not active in controlling his expenses. So we own similar properties that were recently appraised for just a tick over a million dollars. So this property, because of the owner being slow to get rents up to market levels, because the owners owned it for so long and it's performed fine, but I find that a lot of owners, when they own their properties for a long period of time and they're performing well, they don't do a good job of keeping their rents up to market levels and controlling your expenses. So this was one I identified right away when it was put on the market that it took me five minutes to look at the numbers to know that we had something very, very interesting here. So the funny thing is the owner was asking $795,000 for it. We ended up purchasing it for the asking price. And you may say, well, that's crazy. Why in the hell would you purchase it for the asking price? Well, I know it's a million dollar property. Once we get the rents up to market levels, And once we get some of those expenses controlled and be a little bit more proactive in controlling those expenses, we're going to be have a property over a million dollars. So the plan is to get that process completed and done over the next 18 months as leases turn over, as those things happen there, and also work on some of those expense items, including the property taxes and the insurance and some of those other expense items. We're going to get those under control. So the plan is to be in a position where the income is about as high as we're going to be able to get it for now. Those expenses are going to be probably as low as we can get them without sacrificing tenant amenities and those kinds of things. So that net income is going to be at a really, really nice level. And and we're thinking in the next 18 months, we should have a, a property of probably a little over a million, million one in value. And then do you sell or refinance or just hold on to it? That's a great question because that's a question that I have with my partners every single time we look at buying a property. We cover that before we even start getting real serious about it. It's, okay, what do we do next? Now, my answer might surprise you a little bit. I typically don't come up with the answer at that time. So what does that mean? Well, what that means is What I want to do with this 24-unit property, I want to get it to its highest and greatest value as soon as possible. So in this case, I'm projecting it's going to be 14 to 18 months down the road. Once we're there, then my partners and I will have the conversation. It's basically, okay, we're now at the point where it's going to increase in value. It's still going to be fine, but now those value increases are going to come a little bit slower versus what we've just had over the last 18 months. What do we want to do? Do we want to refinance? Do we want to sell it and possibly do a tax deferred exchange? Do we just want to hold on to it and operate it for a year or two and just enjoy the property as it's operating? So I'm one of those guys that doesn't prescribe something right when we're taking it over when it comes to that. My prescription, so to speak, is basically let's get it to that highest and greatest value first as soon as we can. Then let's have the conversations because who knows, the market might be different at that point in time. There may be good opportunities. There may not be good opportunities. So I like to wait it out a little bit, get the property to where it needs to be first. Then we have those conversations. On this one, the jury's out. I don't know what we're going to do. How do you You model that when you're doing projections to investors and you're sharing, okay, here's the deal. Here's what I think we can do. 
you have to have some sort of definitive projected end date in the financial projections. So what do you do when you're sharing your financial projections? Yeah, great question. So I basically use windows. So I'll use six to eight month windows is what I'll do. So we'll go ahead and we'll put our financial projections together. And I don't make it overcomplicated. So I will typically go a worst case, a probable case, and a best case scenario. Okay. Then we'll go ahead and we'll get those projections put together. I'll have a window of about six to eight months on when I think we'll be at that point where we're going to have more intelligent conversations on what we're going to do. We'll model the financials based on worst, probable, and best with a six to eight month window. So right now, my window with this particular 24 unit is 18 months. So a few months before that, we've got a model. We've got a model a few months after that on what things are going to look like in terms of where the rents are, the income is, loan balance, those kinds of things that investors are going to want to know to make an informed decision. So I'll put that out there and use a six to eight month window. And then basically, based on how quickly we get the property ready, or in that position where we can start having that conversation, then we'll start having that conversation. And it may be a little bit early, which is fine because we kind of modeled that. It may be a little bit later. Maybe things go a little bit slower than what we think they would. So we've got a model for that as well. So I use more of a six to eight month window versus saying, you know, on March 2nd of 2021, we're going to have a meeting. So I'm exaggerating a little bit there, of course, Joe, but I don't get that specific, but use those six to eight month windows instead. And it's actually worked out pretty good. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't heard of taking that approach. How many properties do you have under management right now? 672 units right now. 672. And approximately how many properties makes up the 672 units? 23. 23 properties. Okay. For each of these deals, quick math, 623 minus, or 672, a short change in you. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, six, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> you worked hard to get to this point. That's about 29 units on average per property. So what's your largest property? Our largest property is 168 units. 168 units. And smallest property, five unit? Actually, our smallest property, we've got 10 single family homes. And I'm not a big fan of single family homes, but the quick story behind that is we had an opportunity to purchase 60 units, but we had to purchase these homes that were included with them. So we bought the houses with it as well. Cool. So in the deal structure that you have with your investors on the 168 compared to the 24 unit property, how did you, if at all, change the deal structure that you have with investors? That's a good question. The deal structure itself in terms of what I'll call the administrative processes, so partnership agreements, operating agreements, all of the documents necessary in order to get the partnership administratively taken care of, all that's the same. The only thing that really changes there are numbers just based on the size of the properties. So all that's the same. In terms of investors, though, the larger properties I will have the more experienced investors involved in the larger properties than I will the smaller properties. 
So I'll go through a process like with this 168 unit property. If you took a look at the partners that are involved in that with me, is the simplest way I can probably tell you is we've got a little bit more of a sophisticated investor involved in that project as we do versus what we do with the 24 unit property. Now, not by leaps and bounds. How do you structure it in terms of the actual structure of the deal? Is it the same where you take five to 10% ownership and that's your only fee or do you have a different structure with your investors? Great question. So what I'll typically do is I'll get paid really three kinds of fees. So the first fee is I'll be paid a fee for putting the project together, putting the partnership together. And our partnership's a limited liability company. So it's the process of creating the LLC and going through that process. So my fee there is typically between 3 and 5% of the sales price or the purchase price of the property. Another fee that I get to is I'm also a licensed real estate broker. So I'll be paid a fee from the seller when it comes to purchasing that property as well. And then the third fee I get, of course, is managing the partnership. So the ongoing management of the partnership, I'll be paid a fee as well. So the fee on the management of the partnership fluctuates and depending on the size of the project. So the 168 unit project, I'm paid 1% of the gross income every month for that. And it might be a smaller amount with the smaller partnership like the 24 unit. So there's really about three or four avenues of income and fees that come into me above, above the income that I would be getting, of course, by owning the property. And how did you structure it with the 168 unit, your percent ownership? That one, I've got a 7.5% ownership interest in that one. Cool. And with any of your own money into it? Yes. So that 7.5% is all my money in that particular project. Got it. So you don't take any ownership interest into the deal for putting the deal together? Not in that particular one. I've done that in the past. And I do have some of our projects where I am getting a certain percentage every year, typically maybe 1% to 2% ownership in a project over a period of time. But our largest one in that one, I did not. Switching gears a little bit and taking a step back, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? Great question. I would say the best advice, and this is going to sound so oversimplistic, and so you may be disappointed in what I'm going to say. <laughs> I won't be uh, disappointed. I've enjoyed uh, our conversation so far, so that's impossible. Okay, is get out there and actually do it. Take action and do it. And here's why I say that. I spent way too much time thinking about it, reading books, listening to experts on what I should do and how I should do it. And it took me a hell of a long time to actually take action and get out there and invest in something, get out there and start looking for partners, get out there and start taking action. I think it's really easy to be in the knowledge business almost full time and trying to get to a point where you think you've got all the bases covered. Okay, now I think I know everything I need to know before I should move forward. Truth is, we all never even get to that, no matter how much experience we've got. So I would say you want to be taking a shot at getting involved in the market, whether it's raising money, buying that property, do it now. Don't wait for the perfect time because months can go by, years can go by. And by the time you get involved in something, you're thinking to yourself, why in the hell didn't I do this two years ago? Why in the hell didn't I do this three years ago? 
So I would say, as oversimplistic as it sounds, you're never going to have a perfect time to get involved in the real estate market. Do it now. Take action and go for it. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? I'm ready, buddy. All right, let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Best ever listeners, best ever conference. That's where you want to be, February 22nd and 23rd in Denver, Colorado. Put in the code TAKE5, T-A-K-E, and the number 5 to get an extra 5% off. Ticket prices go up weekly, so buy it today, besteverconference.com. You can read all about the conference at the website, all about the speakers. You can read about them and what you will experience when you're there, besteverconference.com. Have you heard about the latest podcast for entrepreneurs called Tough Decisions? Listen to Dan and Danae Hanford as they interview successful people from around the world about tough decisions as entrepreneurs. Visit toughdecisions.net and be sure to subscribe to their free weekly entrepreneurial email. That's toughdecisions.net. All right. Best ever book you've recently read? Am I being too subtle by Sam Zell? What's a mistake you've made on a transaction? Not doing enough due diligence and finding out after we've owned it. What is a specific example of that not doing the due diligence? Not doing the investigative work on the income the property was producing, taking the real estate broker's word on what the property was producing, and then finding out after we took over it wasn't even close to being that at all. Best ever deal you've done? The 168-unit property I just told you about. We purchased it for $5 million one. It's worth a little bit over $9 million now. And the best ever way you like to give back to the community? I like to give back through our church and participating in church activities that involve the community with what our church does. And how can the best ever listeners learn more about what you got going on? Easy. Just go to GarminBlog.com. That's G-A-R-M-A-N. Not the GPS, unfortunately. I'm not involved in that family, but (laughs) Garmin, G-A-R-M-A-N blog.com. Thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, how you approach projections with that six to eight month window at a certain period of time, then having a conversation with investors about the best approach, as well as the lessons you've learned along the way, how you structure your deals with your investors, and how you focus locally and how you've been able to acquire a 672-unit portfolio at the current time. Really interesting. So thank you so much for being on the show, Darren. Hope you have a best ever day, and we'll talk to you soon. It's been a pleasure, Joe. Thanks a bunch. Have you heard about the latest podcast for entrepreneurs called Tough Decisions? Listen to Dan and Danae Hanford as they interview successful people from around the world about tough decisions as entrepreneurs. Visit toughdecisions.net and be sure to subscribe to their free weekly entrepreneurial email. That's toughdecisions.net.